0: Unfortunately, coming back, um, we had placed all my photos from my entire life from a kid, family photos, my parents' photos, you know, from even before me in a big Tupperware vat (laughs) in the basement, supposedly waterproof. But um, once we got back and the place was cleaned and I opened the tub, I realized what had happened. So it was photos, it was negatives, it was slides, and it was um, my work, you know, with, with teachers in school in the arts, um, and, and a lifetime. And a big chunk of that was uh, the time I uh, lived in Alaska from 1970 to 72. Um, and those pictures were taken during uh,
1: Welcome. I am super looking forward to introducing you to a man named Donald Prophet. Donald goes by buzz in his real life, but how I connected with him is I have a very good friend, Lee Post, in Anchorage, Alaska. We work together as child protective workers. We work together as probation officers. So decades of friendship. And Lee is an artist and a cartoonist, and he also does group facilitation, like helps people run amazing and effective groups and takes notes for them. He came across Donald Prophet and was so impressed. He reached out and said, this has to be your podcast guest. Donald wrote a book called Hardship Alaska, but a bit about Donald first. He is a former arts educator and school principal, and he's presented workshops all over the world including in Australia, Belgium, Canada, France, Israel, and Italy. And he came to be an Alaskan educator. You know, I'm from Alaska. Originally, he, well, originally I was from Kentucky, but raised in Alaska, moved to Tennessee a year ago. Donald Prophet came to Alaska because when the Vietnam War came, he had an opportunity instead of going to serve in the Vietnam War, to serve at a different part of our country, Alaska. Back in the day when it was very, very rugged, he was an educator there. And he has been <clears throat> honored with the D. Bennett Mazur Award for Lifetime Achievement from the New Jersey Lesbian and Gay Coalition for having made sustained and profound contributions to transform, transforming society at great risk to himself. He's, let's see, he's twice received the Governor's Award there in Arts and Education, and he was awarded a John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts Teacher Fellowship. He's written a book called Hardship Alaska, and I love that title. If, you, if you're if you living in Alaska for any length of time, that will become your own personal title. It is a rugged, amazing place to be. But I'm really looking forward to conversation with Donald. Also, I'm looking forward to, I believe the date still sits on August 11th. Of course, today I'm recording on July 10th. This will be playing probably much after August 11th. But I should have Grounded in Grit already published. And I'm so excited about that. I look forward to never again being as new at something as I am this process of getting a cover artist, of the book formatting struggles and uploading into different vendors and getting, you know, I have a trademark for Persisters Press. So that in itself, all of these things are a struggle the first time around and they get easier. And I just listened to a podcast recently on Novel Marketing Podcast with Thomas Umstead Jr. And that podcast episode was all about tortoise release of books. In other words, there's a movement for authors to feel pressured to publish as many books as possible and get their series out as fast as possible and sell books and keep people interested. And what this particular episode talked about was a method in which an author chooses to release a book about once a year on a specific date and lets people know to expect it. So letting you know that I think August 11th being my birthday will be A day that I release this book, as well as the following August, I already have a book into my editor. So, just keeping that slow movement going as I do speaking events, a little coaching here and there, a lot of true crime interviewing, and hanging out with you on the podcast and some of you on Patreon. So, I think that kind of works for me. And I'm really excited to be a little bit more in the flow and have a process. I hope your week is going great. Please feel free to share this episode as ever. Give it a review or a rating. And thanks. If you want to hang out even closer and you haven't already, sign up for my email list at lameredith.com, where you get at least two emails a month telling you what's new, like in events that I'm presenting at or things I'm writing. things you might be interested in, workshops I'm giving, and all the things. So it's just a quick read, and it's not going to pummel you three times a week unless I'm at a book launch season. So thanks, and I will introduce you to Donald in just a second. Donald Prophet, it is such a joy to have you today. Thank you so much for being on Persistence U.
0: Oh, and, and thank you, Elizabeth, for inviting me. I'm really oh, excited. my pleasure! I'm excited to be here.
1: Well, excited to have you. I mentioned that our great connector was Lee Post in Alaska, yes. and you and I share that Alaska connection. Yes. But before we go too deep into this, can you tell us about the time a natural disaster came and really bisected your life? Probably yes. you've had a few of them, like most of us. But you know, right. one in particular that really got you to thinking about the yep. legacy you wanted to leave behind.
0: Absol- absolutely, Um Yeah, back in 2006, I was wrapping up my career a- a- in education, as far as working with public schools um, here in New Jersey. Uh, I was principal at Lawrence High School, uh, right beside Princeton, and um, absolutely adored that job. That was uh, a wonderful six years of my life. Um, But in preparation for retirement, um, because I'm originally from New England, uh, my husband and I um, took a trip up to Maine and we were house hunting. In fact, found a a beautiful home uh, in Camden. We're ready to put down our deposit when um, our mayor here in Trenton on a robocall uh warned us of a flood and it was time to evacuate i live right on the delaware river oh, dear. and it sits in a 50-year flood plain and so our neighborhood which is eight blocks long and three blocks wide um at the widest um was probably a place you should never build these homes i know way back um Uh, Native Americans used to fish here, but they never lived here. So there was a clue, but I guess we didn't (laughs) pay (laughs) attention. Right. Um, So 2004 to 2006 uh, would be the floodplain, the 50-year cycle. And it did. We had three major floods. On the last one, which was in June of 2006, while I'm up in Maine house hunting, uh, this flood was particularly bad. And uh, devastated the neighborhood. And when you come back from these, you know you're dealing with the national guard and the state police, local police, the Red Cross, and you know trying to get your house clean of all the mud and sometimes fish that would end up in your basement from the river. Unfortunately, coming back, um, we had placed all my photos from my entire life, from a kid, family photos my parents photos you know from even before me in a big tupperware vat (laughs) in the basement Supposedly, supposedly waterproof but um once we got back and the place was cleaned and i opened the tub i realized what had happened so it was photos it was negatives it was slides and it was um my work, you know, with, with teachers in school, in the arts, um, and, and a lifetime. And a big chunk of that was uh, the time I uh, lived in Alaska from 1970 to 72. Um, and those pictures were taken during a, a pivotal point in my life. I was a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War era. I wanted to get as far away from the West Coast as possible. I mean, the East Coast at that time, just greener pastures, try something new. I like to go to the edge sometimes, to the frontier, uh, just to push myself, Um, but they were gone. All those photos were covered in mud and now sit in a landfill here in New Jersey, somewhere rotting. So I retire, we decide we're not going to move because nobody would buy a house that's been underwater, you know, until some years go by and you forget. So we took it off the market. And uh, it turned out to be a wonderful opportunity. I started consulting with teachers around the globe. um, uh, Working with high school reform, um, the arts project based learning. And so I found myself flying. Um, point A to point B, you know, Philly to uh, Portland, Maine, or to San Francisco, or every little place in between. Um, and as I'm flying, I'm thinking about those images. Um, and so I began writing, I would write, w- what happened, it's an old theater game of, here's a snapshot, and now act out what happens before and what happens after the, the picture that you see. So I took that exercise, um and I started writing on the plane of, okay, what led up to the photo being taken, what is happening in the photo, and then what transpired after what So a great
1: writing prompt, by the way, for anyone who's listening saying, yes, I'd like yes. to write my life story, but how do I get started writing scenes? Right. that's brilliant.
0: It, it It was fun. And if you actually have the photos in hand, it might even <laughs> All the better. It might even be a richer experience. either way, um I am not. I am not a writer. Um, uh, I know that our personnel department had to be on my back all the time about about getting reports in doing this and that it just wasn't part of my, my wheelhouse, I just didn't think I had the skills or the talent, or the patience to do it. So I started writing these Alaska tales, and um, they began to form a set of vignettes. And by 2013, I had something but but what I had was maybe uh, uh, 15,000 words of all these disparate stories. Okay. So um, I continued, I shared some, somebody would ask on a plane, what are you doing? And I would share the story. And they said, well, you know what, that has promise, there might be something there, maybe there's a book, you know, keep doing it. So I um, from that flood, from that experience of trying to retell that period of my life in the photos that I had lost, um, this book, Hardship Alaska, began to take form. Uh, but I also learned quickly uh, in not think, seeing myself as a writer, I had to uh, get some help. So, in addition to sharing it with a longtime friend, Mary Wagner Lefevre, who still lives up in Anchorage, Um, I sought help with um, the Gotham Writers' Workshop. I took a series, a sequence of courses in memoir um, and then uh, talked to the dean there and found a mentor, uh, a mentor editor, uh, Colin Thomas, who didn't do line checks or spelling. But he asked these questions and provoked further investigation. So when I uh, when I first met with him, I think I had 20,000 words. And then at the end of that year of working together on this, I had like 77,000 words. Oh, wow. Okay. And so re- it, it came out then as that book. So um, I have to go back to the flood, you know, um, and how that uh, was the the catalyst you know, the uh, sourdough starter that led to this. And then um, it reminded me of, um, uh, was the founder of Sweet Honey in the Rock, Bernice Johnson Reagan. And I'm just gonna read one of her quotes that, that I kind of live my life by a lot of the time. She said, and this was a lead-in to the song, Wait in the Water. She said, uh, and when there is a promise of a storm, if you want change in your life, you walk into it, right? And if you get to the other side, you will be different. And if you want change in your life and you are avoiding the trouble, you can forget about it. So Harriet Tubman would say, wait on in the water, it's gonna be troubled water. So I look back to that, I could have just said, oh, I lost all my pictures and been done with it. But I took that experience as a a creative uh, endeavor to see. See where that would take me.
1: That's absolutely lovely. That was in a book that you had read.
0: No, I had heard her say it's that still... in concert okay. uh, with with the Sweet Honey in the Rock. So
1: I um, love. It. If you would send that, that that is just a beautiful quote. that's absolute sense. You decided to instead of put it out of your mind and say, "What a huge loss! I'm forever yes. devastated." You decided otherwise. That's
0: yes. that's a terrific outcome. Right. Yep. So. It's been good, Um, you know, and then I went through that whole thing of 30 rejections. And on the 31st uh, query (laughs) to a small publisher, independent publisher outside of Seattle, Epicenter Press, you know, they picked it up. So it's out there.
1: (laughs) That is a story of persistence on its own. You know, these days, and just for listeners who don't know much about the writing world these days, there are many many, many different uh, opportunities for rejection. And the first is trying to get a literary agent. That is, it's just like dating on steroids. It's the worst, you know? And uh, so you put yourself out there with what they call a query. It's a letter saying, this is what I'm writing. Uh, This is why you should, this is why I think people will care. I'd really love you to represent my work and get the word out there. And then if they by some miracle any longer take you on as a client, I heard one agent tell me one time, he takes about five to seven new people a year out of literally thousands of queries at the end of a year. So if by some miracle you're picked up by an agent and then they start with the publishing world, that's a new round of opportunities for rejection.
0: So good
1: for you for going the distance.
0: So it's that, I think it's that, that sense of perseverance too, of you just have to stick with it, you know? Um, and now at this point in my life, in my mid seventies, um, that's I think what carries most of us through. It's these challenges and that ability to face them, right? And then just keep moving. And if you can do it in a creative way, take risks, be curious, um, keep learning. I think that keeps you living longer and living fuller. Right.
1: What do you think was the most important takeaway that you wanted your readers to get from your life story when you opened your heart up and shared? Oh, I mean, there might not just be one thing, but you know,
0: yeah, I, I, I think, um, I mean, the story has layers because some of it has to deal with um, my uh, quest for uh, receiving conscientious objector status from my local draft board. And okay. that was that was a six month battle. So it was uh, one takeaway was um, it, it takes it it can be difficult to prove to others what you really believe and stand for, that there is this element of moral courage that takes over when your principles, your ethics, your values um, are challenged, right? And that's usually because there's an element of danger. For me, it was I was being drafted. I'm a pacifist. I was not going to carry a gun. to cause harm in times of war or peace, so it's that um, that ability to say this is who I am uh, in front of a group of people at the time with the war. You know, it was hard um, to prove that conscientious objector status when they needed people to fight, sure. um, and so it was multiple. Uh, uh, appeals to the state and then to the national before that happens. So um, that moral courage, the element of danger, and then your endurance, how long are you going to sit back and let this happen before your principles actually kick in and you stand up for yourself? So I think the book has a lot to do with um, what you believe in, right? And how you act on it. The belief is is great. But until you act on it, you know, you can say you're respectable or or that you respect others, you're responsible, you have, you practice fairness and compassion. Um, But until you actually are engaged in that uh, act, it's just they're just words. So I think that was one of them. Um, I think accepting myself, I was mm-hmm. coming out, or you come in and out and in and out. I was out as a gay a gay man in college, a very small music school in Princeton, and um, it was safe.
1: And but that was in the seventies.
0: Was yeah. that in the Yeah. So okay. in the sixties, I was uh, in the last four years of the sixties. I was in college. I graduated in seventy. So it was still considered being gay uh, or being a homosexual a disorder you know, um, in the medical and in psychiatric circles. So, uh, and parents who felt my mother, if you come out, you'll never be a teacher, you could never be a principal or run for office, that was Mm -hmm. it compounded with the same they felt about being a conscientious objector, right, that, you know, uh, not quite seeing that you were still doing service. So, I keep trying to come back to your question of takeaways. Um, what was it? So, like, what is your bottom I, line? Yeah. Yeah, it was, I, this is who I am. You guys raised me. You didn't raise me to be evil. Um, you know, I can't help that this is where I am. So it's that um, standing up for yourself, that perseverance. Um, and you never really stop coming out. And family matters you know, in mm-hmm. community. So I hope I you didn't served, ramble too much there.
1: No, you served our country in a totally different way. When you finally got that accepted, yes. you went, and where did you, uh, what did you do exactly
0: so, to serve so our country? Part of the battle was I could have fled to Alaska, I mean, to Canada, and I had my immigration papers ready. Um, I could have refused to carry the gun, shown up for you know, uh, um, my my obligation to serve and then end up in jail for five years. Um, but in my heart and in my mind, I wanted to serve, I felt everybody, everybody should serve for one to two years, but in using their skills and abilities to improve, you know, the nation and communities. So that was my thing I did, I wanted to serve. So, um, once I got the status uh, from the National Appeal Board, um, which was somewhere early October 1970, I was then charged by my local draft board to show up for work on November 1st. Uh, and but now I had to find a job. Back in say Korean War and um, World War II, most conscientious objectors would end up in a work camp. Uh, you know, you uh, a federal work camp, um, unless you were a medic and served in the military, but without a weapon. Um, so I'm I'm working with the Quakers in Philly um, mm-hmm. because they have this roster of approved jobs. Um, uh, in other words, I guess the local draft boards and the and, and the selective service at the national level. Uh, found that it was probably easier for the CO, the conscientious objector, to find their own approved work. So I'm going through these lists and I could have stayed in Philly, South Philly, and worked in a coffee house um, uh, to improve the neighborhood and offer a a community center um, because I was living in Allentown, Pennsylvania. But the draft board said, your two years of service need to be a hardship, which I found ridiculous in that I really wanted to serve. And and when should serving your country be a hardship? But anyhow, um, I could have done the Philly job because it was exactly 55 miles away from home. And what 55 miles is nothing. You can commute if you you had to. Um, And I saw this listing for... Anchorage Children's Services in Anchorage that worked with group homes, emergency shelters, residential care. And I applied. It just seemed like I could do that. I was being trained as a teacher. Um, I'm a musician. And I got this great position with them. I went up and uh, did a 10-day journey by car, Um, you know, fraught with all kinds of things from being blown off off the highway in Saskatchewan in the Prairie by a freak uh, storm. A gale came through, uh, running into a group of Soviet ice skaters. I can't remember if they were a hockey team or the ice circus in Edmonton at the Holiday Inn. Oh, my. um, Doing shots of vodka with them. Once I found out that's what they were asking me to do, Uh, a breakdown in the Yukon on the top of a mountain pass. Oh, dear. Um, And so it was an interesting journey on my own in a little Volkswagen. Uh, First time, you know, other than college, away from home, living on my own. And so um, it became this wonderful experience. Um, Hard work. So the hardship was there. I mean, Mm -hmm. working with kids in shelters, in residential treatment, coming out of just horrific family situations. was uh, it took its toll on me, and I think because I am I don't know if it was the arts or I'm just extremely empathetic and, and sensitive, uh, that began to take its toll. So I, uh, I did that work for about six months, and um, my boss there, supervisor at the time, thought. Uh, I should maybe get back in touch with music. <laughs> and uh, they helped me uh, kind of segue out of working with kids for, for just a few months. Um, and I got involved um, with the Episcopal Church, St. Mary's in Anchorage, um, where I ended up being their music director, working with their senior youth group. I, ra- I ran a coffee house. I set up the coffee house that I could have run in, um in Philly um, and worked with a, a, we ran a homeless shelter out of the church in the summer. So um, I went from a, a, a gorgeous apartment, downtown Anchorage on M Street, overlooking Cook Inlet. Beautiful. Um, and, and Mount Susitna, the sleeping lady, to living, uh, cause I couldn't afford it anymore if I'm not working with Alaska Children's Services, living in a closet, <laughs> I'm, I'm in the closet, I'm living in a closet, <laughs> under the staircase uh, in the church. And okay. I, that was my home for about 18 months.
1: Oh my goodness,
0: that. okay. And they did a deal. So the, um, the draft board never never realized that because um, the church worked with Alaska Children's Services so that the reports were still done and uh, there was no interruption to my service.
1: Good. Good. So you were able to transition
0: from Alaska yes.
1: Children's Services to
0: to the church and then the church. and then started doing relief work or um, relief counseling at a, a few of the group homes. Excellent. Once I and w- once I got my head back together, you know, they're still doing up.
1: some some great work with kids in Alaska, yes. too. Yes. You know, my yes. career was largely intersecting with Alaska Children's Services. So that's right. That's right. That's wonderful. Well, how did you, what have you heard from people who've read the book because you did get a lot of buzz about it.
0: Yes. Um well, you know what, it's funny because being being a principal, a music teacher, uh, you know, the arts supervisor, all of that, um writing it and then seeing it published, I, I was nervous. I was like what are people going to think? Because I I didn't hold back. I, there's a lot of honesty of self uh, discovery and exposure in the work. So I know I had um, one of my students who now lives in London, um, uh, working in music copyright. uh, There, Um, he said, but well, you know, Mr. Prophet, um, we loved you, then we'll love you now, but also understand we're in our mid 30s, (laughs) going into our 40s. So you know, whatever you write, it's fine. We're not going to look at you differently. (laughs) So that, and then I've gotten some wonderful response from my teachers, been invited into a couple of their um, book clubs for this year. Um, And so, yeah, the response was warmer, uh, more accepting um, than I thought. And and so, you know, it, it made me think that, you know, all of us have stories to tell. and um, you know there's that fear of telling it but you know once once you can get over yourself (laughs) you know people are going to accept you for who you are and those who don't you know that's that's fine too so yeah the church um, where i live saint mary's um, was particularly responsive um, in that they saw it was part of their history that they had lost touch of that those two years and with the rector, uh, Chuck Eddy, who was there at the time, who who passed um, from COVID a couple years ago, um, they saw this whole period of the church being a mission and then becoming a full-fledged church at the time. And then their continuing work in social justice, Um, they think may have had to do with my being there. And I don't want to, I'm not trying to brag about it, but they think uh, my presence there with um, Chuck Eddie, the rector, uh, helped him uh, better embrace LGBTQ issues, you know, as the 70s progressed and then into the 80s. So I found that powerful that if if the book and my presence had that um, that impact um you know i'm honored (laughs) i'm floored by that because you don't think that right you're you're just living trying to figure out who the hell you are so you know
1: well that's excellent that's really a beautiful thing about finishing this book having the courage to launch it Mm -hmm. and then seeing what the response is and uh you know, what a beautiful legacy to leave also. So, I mean, it's kind of a good thing that that flood came And
0: Yeah, well, because I think, I, I you know, I think a lot of us can look back and see when there's been that obstacle, if you can remove it or if, and, and your perception changes, right? And so there's something new on the other side of that. Right. It's fresh and you just have to venture into it. Yep.
1: I love that. Fantastic. So title of your book again, and where can listeners and viewers, if they're on YouTube, sure. where can they connect with you best?
0: Sure. Well, the title of the book is Hardship Alaska. I'll show you that. Um, you can find it, you know, on uh, most online booksellers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple, all of that Um bookshop.org is a great place because I really believe in independent local bookstores. And if you purchase through that website, book, uh, bookshop.org, your local bookshop uh, that you designate will receive the profits on that sale. So I love that. Um, you can go visit my website, which is Donald profit with two F's, uh, com. Okay. and uh, there you can find the same links to 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 uh, purchase the book um and there's a number of blogs that i started um and again uh you know when you when i found myself published i had a publisher who said you need a website and you need to be on twitter and this and that you, you know you think it's going to sell itself but <laughs> it's up to you the the author to sell your own work
1: right.
0: um, so, um, yeah, donaldprofit.com and, uh, you know, enjoy the, uh, the blog posts and uh, the information that's there. Uh, it's all very um, experimental, experiential in that, um, uh, you know, some of the blogs and things are, are taking a risk with a new poem I've been written, uh, I've written or, or even fragments from the book are in there. So Excellent. And, and uh, the last the last three all have to do with my recent uh, book tour where I was uh, back in Anchorage just uh, two weeks ago. So there's three posts that feature photo galleries of, of uh, two booktop talks and kind of rediscovering where I first lived, the closet and my apartment. So.
1: That's so exciting. And I, I wish I had been there. That sounds beautiful. Yes. I'm sure I knew a lot of the people in the audience. So,
0: yes, yes.
1: That's terrific, including Lee Post. So, yes. I Lee, think. And
0: Lee, and Lee was phenomenal to have, you know, do, um, I found that in working with teachers and doing community work, when you're leading conversations, and I love the World Cafe approach, which is three rounds of conversations in small tables uh, based on questions that matter um to have a visual practitioner on site with you who is sketching the conversation capturing what people are saying is a whole it's a whole other way of learning and processing uh you know uh, the information and the content and, and the conversation and the people in the room so yeah, if it, it, when you can do work like that with an artist, whether it's music or visual art, it, it's a powerful.
1: That was a great description too of what he does. So I need to put yes. a link in the show notes yes. for him as well yes. because yes, a lot of us have meetings and we walk away and say, "What happened? What did yep. just happen last week? We had a good feeling about it, but then it went away." Right. So to have him commemorate it in a way that sticks in your brain is a right. part
0: all its own. Right. And he left the four or five posters that he had done during the during the um, the uh, book talk session at the church uh, were kept up on the windows so that um, on Sunday or whenever there would be a a meeting or some other activity, um, others who didn't attend uh, the conversation could could follow it. Wow. Okay. Through his images. So it's powerful. Yeah.
1: That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. I certainly enjoyed having Don Prophet as my guest months ago now, and I just want to remind you that if you've ever thought about writing your story, even just a little, think about the information he gave. Take an old picture. Think about what happened before that snapshot was taken or what you assume may have happened. Like, were there cookies in the oven? Was there an argument in the background with your siblings? What kind of music was playing? Think about that. Even if you can't remember exactly, try to remember and use all of your senses Think about that, then look at the picture again, and then think about what happened after the picture, after that snapshot was taken. And sometimes that can be a fabulous writing prompt. So thank you to Donald Buzz Prophet for being my guest and for giving us all a little bit of inspiration and a writing prompt. Hope you have a fabulous week. I will see you next week. We have some amazing guests coming up, and come fall, more in October, we will start our once a month True Crime Wednesday. Have a delightful week. Thanks for sharing and for rating. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed it, feel free to leave a review, and if you've really, really enjoyed it, Go ahead and subscribe, and I'll see you next week.
0: Proud member of the Podnougan Network.